If you would, turn in your Bibles to Joel. To Joel. So those little, little guys towards the end of the Old Testament. Get past the Psalms. Keep going to the back. And you'll find it in there. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Listen as I read the word of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion... Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations." Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let me pray for us. Lord, your word is powerful. It accomplishes always all that you intend. So we pray that you would transform us and change us now through the proclamation of your word, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) 
in the middle of the American Revolution on May 19th, 1780, starting at around 11 o'clock, a mixture of clouds and smoke and fog rolled over New England as far north as Portland, Maine, and as far south as New Jersey. An eyewitness described that day saying it was as dark as night, a day when a candle was needed to see anything outside at noon. Uh, One author recounted the events of that day, which became known as the dark day this way. He said, the dark day inspired terror, panic, puzzlement. Men prayed and women wept. Thousands left off work and took to taverns and churches for solace. Children were sent home from school. Bewildered chickens went to their roosts. Frightened cattle returned to their stalls. The night birds whistled and frogs peeped as they did at midnight. Fear and dread settled into the people's hearts as they looked around in the middle of the day, noon, and saw only blackness. Christians waited and listened for the sound of trumpets announcing God's judgment. Pastors called their congregants to gather for confession. Uh, One poem that was inspired by the events of this day reads this way. 19th of May, a gloomy day when darkness veiled the sky. The sun's decline may be a sign some great event is nigh. Well, as it turns out, the thick darkness was caused by a massive forest fire in Canada, and smoke came across the country and mingled with fog and clouds off of the Atlantic Ocean and combined to create a cloud cover that almost completely blocked out the sun. By the evening of May 19th, the cloud cover lifted, and on May 20th, the sun rose. The day was bright, and their fears were relieved, and life could go on as normal. And yet what our passage tells us this morning is that a day of darkness is coming. But that day of darkness that's coming won't be caused by a rare mixture of smoke and fog, and it won't merely cover parts of New England. That day of darkness that is coming will descend over the entire world to signify the coming of the Lord himself to judge in righteousness. Our passage says, verse 1, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness. As you know, we've been uh, working through the book of Joel, and the main theme of the whole book is the day of the Lord. Now, Up to this point, Joel has been calling Judah to weep over their sin and repent as they feel the devastating effects of this locust plague. But what we find in chapter 2 is that the locusts are merely to be a pointer, a forerunner, a foreshadowing of a greater coming day of the Lord, which he calls a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. That language, by the way, is, is meant to make us think of two things, that language of darkness. The first thing is it's meant to make us think of the appearance of God. If you were to look through the Old Testament and look at all the places where you see darkness, what you will find is God appearing, the presence of God coming to his people. And the second thing that it's meant to uh, make us think of is not just God appearing, but God appearing in judgment. And many of those times in the Old Testament when we find darkness, we find God's presence coupled with his judgment. So a good example would be, uh, do you remember uh, one of the plagues in Egypt is, a, is darkness, is God uh, executing a, a judgment against Egypt. So on the horizon for Joel is an impending day of the Lord that threatens to wipe out Judah altogether. And there's, there's some debate as to what the actual events are that are being described in chapter 2. Some argue it's an intensified description of the locust plague, while others see it as an impending invasion of a military force, perhaps the Babylonians or the Assyrians. I tend to think it's the second one, 
uh, and probably the Assyrians. But what I want you to see is that even the immediate calamity that Joel is describing, whatever it is, whether it's locusts more intensified or whether it's an invasion of a, of a military force, the Babylonian, whatever it is, it is ultimately a pointer to the final eschatological day of the Lord, this day of darkness. That is the final day when the Lord comes again to judge the works of man, to reward righteousness and to destroy all evil. So, so listen, that day, can we, just, can we just stop for a minute and, and remember that day is coming? That day is coming and, and it should cause us to tremble. This, this life that you are living and the world as you know it will come to an end. The Lord, you know, is not slow to fulfill his promises, but is wisely and faithfully bringing all of human history to its appointed end. There, there will be a last day of human history when everything will stop and the world will never again continue on as it has. Do you, do you feel the, the... Most of us are just barely moved by that. Like day in, day out, we're just, we're just barely moved by that reality. And our lives don't reflect the fact that we are always and continually and unavoidably moving steadily moment by moment towards that day. Right now, each moment that passes, we are moving steadily towards that day. So our passage this morning tells us that this day of the Lord will be a day of darkness. Are you prepared for that day? Are your neighbors prepared for that day? Is your family prepared for that day? Are your children prepared for that day? Your coworkers prepared for that day? This morning, our passage helps us to prepare by pointing us forward to that day in two ways. This power passage helps us to prepare by pointing us forward to that day in two ways. The first way is it gives us a prophetic description of that day. I'll tell you why that's important. A prophetic description of that day. And then the second thing is that our passage points us forward to the way to escape that day. So two things. A prophetic description of that day and then the way to escape that day. So let me first tell you why I think a description is so helpful here in preparing us. If you've read the Bible for any amount of time, you'll know that it's filled with all kinds of descriptive imagery, lots of like crazy pictures. And that's because when you come to those passages, the Holy Spirit is wanting you to use your imagination. You see, for many of us, we, we know the Bible is telling us the truth here about the day of the Lord. We, we cognitively know it, but all we've ever experienced is one day moving on to the next, day after day. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, and every day we expect that tomorrow will be like today. And so the idea that one day it will all come to this climactic, dramatic end just doesn't seem real to us. We know it cognitively in our head, but we don't have a sense of the reality of it. But the fact is that it will one day come to an end, and that should have a profound effect on the way we live our lives. A sense of that reality would produce in us a profound change in how we go about living our lives. And there are already a thousand ways in which when you imagine something coming down the line, it impacts your life, right? So, so think, give me, let me give you an example. If you were, if you were well, those of you who are married, you can, you can think back to this. Do you remember the month leading up to your marriage, you're engaged, you're getting married in a month, and you 
as you are leading up to your marriage, as you're getting ready to get married, you imagine it, right? You imagine what the day is going to be like, everyone all dressed up. You imagine what the ceremony is going to be like. You imagine what the reception is going to be like. You imagine what it's going to be like when it's just you and your spouse alone for the first time after having been married. You imagine what the wedding night is going to be like. You imagine all these things and that impacts the way that you live, right? You, you, you could be having like a terrible day, like a flat tire and all these things going wrong. And yet, you know, a month, uh, in a month's time, I'm going to be married. And, I, and because you've imagined it, it impacts the way that you live. It works in reverse too. If you've, got some, if, you, if you've got something in your day that you're dreading, right? Like I've got to go stand in line at the DMV. Like I know this afternoon, I've got to go like stand at... Yeah, and, and you imagine it, right? You like, you get there in the building. Yeah, you're not doing this like, you know, consciously, but, you, but this is what happens in your mind subconsciously. You imagine it. You're like, it's going to take forever. I'm going to have to stand in line. The people are grouchy. It's, it's miserable there. And then that colors the rest. You, you just dread it the rest of the day. That's because when you imagine what's coming down the line, it has a profound impact on the way that you live, live your life. And what I'm telling you is that what Joel is trying to do us here is help us imagine this day that is coming so that it will have an impact on the way that we live our lives now. You understand what I'm saying? You tracking with me? Imagining that day as it's described in the Bible sort of helps us bridge that gap between what we know cognitively to be true, that, the, that, the, that a day will come, that the end will come, to bridge that gap between what we know but, and what we have not yet experienced so that it actually becomes a controlling reality in our lives. In other words, the reality of the coming day of the Lord will be, become more and more a substantial, animating truth that governs the way that we live when by faith, listen to me, when by faith you begin to imagine and internalize the truth of what God says is going to happen. So let's look at how the Bible describes this day. I'm not going to tell, tell you how many descriptors there are. You're just going to have to track along. First, it's going to be a day of unbridled power. It's going to be a day of unbridled power. You understand what we're doing right now? We're trying to imagine this day. It's going to be a day of unbridled power. Imagine it with me. Look at verse 2. Like a blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Hop down to verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is, very, is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Right, Joel begins by describing the invading force as a great and powerful people. Remember what's happening here. I'm telling you, for Joel, there's this impending on the horizon day of the Lord that he says is an invading army. And what I'm saying, that is a pointer to what the day of the Lord is going to be like. Okay, It's going to be powerful. So great is this army, he says, in fact, that he says their like has never been before, nor will there be again after them. Now, you might remember from our short study on Mark 13 that that phrase, um, never before, nor will be again, that's actually like a Hebraic figure of speech. Uh, and what, it, the, this, what that little figure of speech means is this army is a really, 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 really powerful. Okay? It's, it's not literally saying there's never been a hu in human history an army that's been this powerful and there, there will never be an army that's this powerful again. It's saying really, 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 really powerful. It would be like me saying like he runs as fast as the wind. Right? You know what I'm saying. You're, you know I'm literally not saying he runs as fast. As you're, I'm saying he's really, really, really fast. That's what's happening here. The army is really, really, really powerful. But what I want you to see is that while the army is very powerful in an earthly sense, and both the Babylonian and the Assyrian armies were indeed very powerful, the final source of the power is not their spears or their chariots or their shields. It is the word of God. It's the power of God. You see in verse 10, he says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. Now, maybe I can make an argument that it's legitimate to describe an army saying the earth quakes before them, but heaven? Heaven trembling before an earthly army? That seems a little far-fetched. Is this army really so powerful that we need natural phenomena to describe it? Sun and moon darkening, the stars ceasing to shine? Ah, but the rest of the passage tells us how these things can be true. 
right? Because ultimately this army is an instrument in the hand of God, in the hand of one who is infinitely powerful. Look again at verse 11. It says, the Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. Did you hear it? Do you see it? It's, it's his army. His camp is exceedingly great. It's the army that he has chosen as his instrument and will be effective in doing all that he intends. Why? Because there is no power in the world that can hold a candle to the power of God as he speaks his word. He who executes his word is powerful. And so what do we learn? The day of the Lord. Remember, we're trying to imagine the day, okay? The day of the Lord is going to be unbridled power. The unbridled expression of God's power. The army Joel is describing is nothing less than the unleashing of God's power against Judah. And you can understand then why such a description uh, provokes this rhetorical question that Joel asks. The day of the Lord is great, is very is, uh, great and awesome. Who can endure it? You, you understand, right? When he says the day of the Lord is, is uh, great and awesome, he's not saying like, the day of the Lord, it's great. It's, it's awesome. Like that's not what he's, you understand he's not saying that. That word great, it, it, it means like size and weight. It's going to be heavy. And that word awesome means like inspiring awe and fear. The, what, the, the, the response, this idea, the, the day of the Lord is great and awesome would be like you standing before a hundred foot wall of water tidal wave about to come down on you. That's the kind of greatness and awesomeness we're talking about. As we go on, we find what the aim of God is. God's unbridled expression of power. So the day of the Lord, the unbridled expression of God's power. How is he going to express it? What's the point of him expressing this power? It's going to be a day of all-consuming, inescapable, catastrophic destruction. The day of unbridled power. God's unbridled power aimed in this direction. All-consuming, inescapable, catastrophic destruction destruction. Look at verse three. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Again, allow the imagery to help you try to imagine. Before this army, there is a fire that destroys and behind the army is a flame that burns. It's a pointer to the absolute destruction uh, God will bring on that final day. You remember that in the days of Noah, after the flood, after God rescued Noah and his family, he promised never to destroy the world with water. Uh, but 2 Peter 3, 7 tells us this. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That you know, Hebrews tells us, our God is a consuming fire who will bring about nothing less than a complete destruction of the ungodly. Did, did you catch the language in verse two? He says, like blackness is spread upon the mountain, a very great and powerful people. That The idea here is that the fierce consuming destruction of God will settle upon the world like blackness settling upon a mountain. If you've ever just, so Lindsay and I were out in Colorado and you get, there's all these, you know, mountains. And as you watch the sun go down, just slowly but surely a blackness falls on the entire mountain. It is all consuming. Nothing is left untouched by the blackness. No one will escape. At the end of the Bible, we get a picture of this day, and we read this. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? As the, as the blackness settles, as the day of darkness settles, it is inescapable. As God's power is revealed and the consuming fire of his justice descends, Men will long to hide themselves, but there will be nowhere to hide from his presence. Brothers and sisters, when that day comes, there will be no escaping it. It it will be a reality, reality that everyone must face. And when the unbridled power of God descends to consume with fire, the result will be utter and absolute destruction. Do you see that language there? It says, uh, before them, it is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them, a desolate wilderness. What was once like the Garden of Eden will be left a desolate wilderness. It's actually, you know, God's judgment. When you, if you were to go back and do sort of like a little biblical theology theme study, when you find God's judgment, it's actually creation reversal. Right? So you go into Genesis 1, and what you, what you see is God bringing chaos into, bring, bringing creation out of chaos, bringing order to chaos. God's judgment is actually the reverse. Out of, out of order, out of creation, he brings chaos. He brings destruction. He brings wilderness, desolation. And at this point, it probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it because the passage says it. This is our third description. It's going to be a day of sheer terror. A day of God's unbridled power. A day of inescapable, all-consuming, catastrophic destruction. And it's going to be a day of sheer terror. Look at, look at verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. This is Joel turning now to describe the army and the fear it produces. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Right. So as the, as the army draws closer, the people begin to see... Uh, the outline of the army, war horses running, chariot wheels rumbling, moving so fast it seems like they're leaping across mountains. And everywhere this army touches, they leave ash and dust and destruction. And now they are ready to bring their destruction to Judah. And so it will be on the day of the Lord. This day of darkness, when the Lord himself will appear with fire in his eyes, sword coming from his mouth, robe dipped in blood. Guys, it's going to be a day filled with terror. I'm not saying this for just like shock value. It's going to be a day filled with terror. The text says that people are in anguish and their faces grow pale. Literally, Literally, the people are writhing in pain when they are confronted with the Lord. All the blood rushes out of their face and they feel nauseous. And then a sheer unabating terror will take over. It will be a day filled with screaming, with panic, with fear, with weeping. A day where many will scramble for some shred of hope but they will find nothing. I'm I'm not saying this to be over the top. I'm trying to help you imagine that it's real, that when that day comes, it's going to be terrifying. And I know we don't like to talk this way often, and, and partly I think it's because our hearts just can't bear dwelling on these realities consistently all the time. But I'm saying it because we need to be real about where this thing is headed. 
right? You, I just want to be, the Bible is just being honest. I'm trying to be honest about what the Bible says about where this thing is going. Have you really considered what it will mean when Jesus comes back? Do you, do you remember that passage we, we read in Amos 5? It's kind of surprising, right? Because we do, we anticipate, we long, we eagerly wait for the day of the Lord, for the return of Christ. Amos 5, though, puts it this way. Woe to you, desire, to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Why would you have it? It's a day of darkness. It's a day where there's no light. It, it, the brightness is gone. And we need to allow the coming reality of the day of the Lord to have its full effect in our lives. This reality has a profound impact on how we spend our time, on how we raise our children, on how we work at our jobs, on how we think about other people in our lives. Listen, something you could do. We're going to have lunch in a little bit. Eat soup, have bread, whatever's there. Sit across the table. Ask one another, how does the coming day of the Lord impact the way we live. Have that conversation. Lastly, it's going to be a day of efficient and resolute destruction. Let me say, let me just say this briefly. Look at verse seven. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Look, here's the picture we get here. The picture is that we get here. A great and powerful army is coming. It's going to incite panic and terror, and it will bring about total destruction. And once they've arrived, there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. Nothing. Once they appear, there's nothing that you can do to stop it. When the warriors arrive, there are no negotiations. There's no bargaining. There's no potential truces. When they arrive, they charge. They scale the walls. There is no deviation in their course. They do not swerve from their path. There's no hesitation. There's no indecision. There's no reluctance. They don't jostle each other about. They just are steady on their path. They are one unit allied around this single goal of bringing about complete destruction and death. And there is no resistance that can slow them down. It is utter and complete destruction. They burst through the weapons. They are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run up the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows. These are probably the verses that... It's a parenthetical statement. These are probably the verses that argue best for this sort of intensification of the locust play. You could see very easily how Joel is using the picture of an army to describe metaphorically locusts climbing up walls and climbing in uh, to uh, the, the houses. And you see that language. They're like warriors. They're like so soldiers. They're like a, like a thief. But whether it's an army of people or an army of locusts, this, the, the point is... It can't be stopped, right? That's the point. When we consider the day of the Lord, when that day comes, listen, brothers and sisters, when the day of the Lord comes, that's a wrap. It's done. It's over. There's no, there's no bargaining. There's no negotiations. It's done. Nothing can stop or will stop the destruction that God will bring by the power of his word. It's, it's, it's a terrifying description and are you ready? Are you prepared? Praise God that Joel gives us here not only a description of that day, but the way to escape that day. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent 
and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. There's so much to say in just these three verses, but let me just draw your attention to a few things. The Lord says, yet even now, yet even now, Judah had turned away from God and their sin had become so great that an army was mobilized by the very word of God to destroy them. But he says, yet even now, yet even now, if you will return to me, I will forgive. The day of the Lord will come, a final day of darkness that will bring about God's final judgment. And when that day comes, as I said, there will be no bargaining, there will be no negotiating, there will be no second chances, no do-overs, no if-onlys. But listen, right now, he says, right now, he says, wherever you find yourself and whatever whatever condition you find yourself in, return to me. Return to me. Maybe some of you think that the hour is too late for you. You've tried Jesus before, and and it didn't work. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me. Some of you have people in your lives that you think are so far gone, they'll never come to Christ. But don't, don't you see in those words, yet even now, today is the day of salvation. You, you don't know what the Lord will do. Listen, we just sang it. I, lo- I love the words of that song. Dear refuge of my word. Did you notice that last verse? Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. The day of the Lord is coming. A day of darkness. But right now, his mercy seat is open. His mercy seat is open. And you don't know what he'll do. Persevere. Be faithful. Endure. Preach the gospel every chance you get with confidence. Brothers and sisters, don't you see here the urgency of our mission? The day of the Lord is coming when God's patience will expire. But today, but today, right now, today, his mercy seat is open. When that day of darkness comes, I pr- listen, when that day of darkness comes, I promise you, I promise you, you will not wish you spent more time scrolling social media and curating your page. You will not wish you saw more movies. You will not wish you made more money. You will not wish you had nicer things. You will not wish you traveled more or took more vacations. None of those things is inherently sinful. I'm not, don't hear that. I'm not saying you can't do those things. They're not inherently sinful. What I'm trying to give you is the perspective that comes with knowing the day of the Lord is coming. What you will regret are the opportunities you failed to take to speak the gospel because you were too consumed with your reputation, too busy to be bothered, or too afraid of the consequences. The passage is, is bookended by a, 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 um, a command to blow the trumpet. And sound the alarm, right? The idea is that Joel has this urgent warning for Judah that they need to hear. And the warning is, the day of the Lord is fast approaching. Turn to the Lord while you can. Now now listen, I'm not telling you to write like the end is near on a piece of cardboard paper or cardboard and go stand on a corner somewhere. That's, That's not what I'm telling you to do. But does this reality color our view of the people around us and the conversations we, we have with him? This yet even now, right? I just gave you this description. That's real. That's coming. Yet even now, right now, his mercy seat is open. Do you feel that sense of urgency about the mission we've been given? In verses 15 to 16, there's this, there's this interesting little statement about a bride groom and and uh the bride right do do you see it there where is it uh verse 15 and uh 16 uh end of 16 let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber do you understand what he's picturing there the idea is that the the bridegroom and the bride have been married and now they're in the, the 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 chamber and the room are synonymous with one another they're now in the room together 
They're about to consummate their marriage. And Joel says, stop, it can wait. This is urgent. This is important. The day of the Lord is coming. Stop. Everything needs to stop because of how urgent this is. Now, we're not panicked. As Christians, we are not panicked because we trust in God who is Lord over all and who sovereignly reigns over every moment in our lives, every encounter we have, every word that comes out of our mouths. But may, listen, this is what I'm trying to get you to, may our confidence in God's sovereignty never be an excuse to grow lazy in our pursuit of filling the Great Commission. The day of the Lord is coming and his mercy seat is open now. The exact opposite is actually the case. The fact that God is the Lord of salvation gives us every confidence that as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel, he will rescue his people unto himself. He will bless the proclamation of the gospel by doing what only he can do by his spirit in bringing people to himself. And so Joy Community Fellowship, the day of the Lord is drawing near. The mercy seat is open. So now it's time for us to get after it. Now it's time for us to go. There are people who will be those people screaming in terror and panic because they have not heard the gospel. And our call as Christians is to go, is to be faithful, is to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel because now his mercy seat is open. It's time to take up the words of Isaiah 55 and to lovingly and graciously and confidently and boldly and joyfully say to a world that is lost in darkness, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now look, let, let me say something to those of you who are believers here that struggle to confidently know and abide in the love of God for you. Listen to me. If you're that person, you struggle to know confidently and abide in the love of God for you. If God's heart right now, listen, if God's heart right now towards his enemies is yet even now returned to me and I will abundantly pardon, if that's his heart right now to his enemies, what do you think his heart is towards his children? What do you think his heart is towards his children? Some of you live in fear that God's going to get fed up with you, that he's going to see you struggling in your sin and he's going to abandon you. You know that idea, when he says, rend your hearts and not your garments, do you know what he's saying? He's saying everything you try and do to fix yourself is just evidence of a heart of self-righteousness. I don't want your activities and your religious rituals. Rend your hearts. Do you know what? When you rend your heart, do you know what you're confessing? I know it must be by grace. It ha if I'm going to return to the Lord, it will have to be by grace. It won't be because of things that I can do. I will have to come with a heart broken over my sin, but having no way to fix it. And he will have to be gracious. And he is. In Christ, you are his Beloved children, and his posture towards you is eternally one of grace and compassion and love and mercy. In Christ, those words, yet even now, stretch billions of years into eternity and will never lose their efficacy. Now, what is our confidence? Listen, watch this. Look, look at uh, the, the next verse. <clears throat> verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Do, do you see what the source of your hope and your confidence is supposed to be? Is the source of your hope and confidence supposed to be what you can bring to the table? Is it supposed to be your righteousness? Is it supposed to be your good works? Is it supposed to be your confession? Is it supposed to be your repentance? It's supposed to be your Bible reading. It's supposed to be your prayer time. No. 
It is supposed to be the character of God. You are not right with him because of anything you bring to the table. And there is no one you will speak the gospel to who will merit right standing before God. But our hope rests, brothers and sisters, our hope and confidence rests in this. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. That, that word gracious is linked to God's compassion. He waits to show compassion even to his enemies. His kindness and compassion and love are like waters pressing up a dam that's ready to break. That he's slow to anger. It literally means he's long of nostrils. When he is grieved by sin, do you know what he does? He's slow to anger. The images of God taking a deep breath He's not quick to rage, but he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. I love that phrase. He's abounding in steadfast love. It's not just enough to say that he's stead- he is steadfast in love. He is faithful, unyielding, unchanging, enduring, persevering in his love. But in all those things, he's abounding. You may look at your life and just see sin abounding, but take one look at your God in the face of Jesus Christ and see his love abounding to you all the more. His love for you multiplies and abounds to you more than your sin multiplies and abounds in you. One author put it this way, he will never throw his hands up in the air. Despite all the reasons his people give him to do so, he refuses even to entertain the notion of forsaking us who deserve to be or of withdrawing his heart from us the way we do toward others when they hurt us. Therefore, he is not simply existing in large-hearted covenant commitment, but abounding in it. His determined commitment to us never runs dry. And he relents over disaster. His heart isn't thrilled and excited by disaster, but he's quick to turn back from it. Listen, this in no way threatens the absolute authority of God, but communicates that at the epicenter of God's heart, listen, at the epicenter of God's heart towards you is compassion and mercy and love. But here's the thing, and some of you probably noticed this, Joel is directly quoting from Exodus 34, but he suspiciously leaves out that last phrase, doesn't he? He's a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34 goes on to say, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, that's the relenting from disaster, but, but, who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you feel the tension between verses 11 and verse 12? The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, says the Lord. How how can God say that? Judah has sinned. We have sinned. Justice must have its day. The day of darkness must come. Justice must have its day. A day of the Lord when sin is accounted for and punished. But brothers and sisters, here is our hope. 700 years later, justice did have its day. Justice did have its day. It was precisely for that day that God sent his son into the world. He he lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his father. But instead of receiving the promised blessings for his obedience, he received a curse. He was betrayed. He was abandoned, accused, handed over to die on a Roman cross. And do you know how we find Jesus on that cross? We find, listen, do you know how we find Jesus on the cross? We find him in sheer terror. We find him in anguish. We find him screaming in pain. But it's not merely the physical pain of death that causes Jesus terror. It's that he is experiencing the unbridled power of God's wrath against sin. 
It is that he is experiencing the all-consuming, inescapable, catastrophic, fiery hell of God's judgment against your transgression. It is that he is experiencing the absolute, efficient, and resolute devastation of God crushing him into dust for your rebellion. And you know what we read in Mark 15? And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do, do you think Mark says that darkness fell over the land for dramatic effect? Don't you see? He took the darkness of that day for you. The dark day that was to come, he took it for you. All the darkness of that day that should have fall on you, he took it all. In Joel 2.11, he writes, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's a rhetorical question, and the, and the, the rhetorical part of it is the answer is no one. Right? No one can endure it. Save one. Hebrews 12, 2 calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Who can endure the day of the Lord? A day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. No one can but Jesus Christ, and he endured it to the very end for you. He endured it to the very end so that you would never have to bear that day of darkness. So that you would never have to bear a day of terror, a day of inescapable and catastrophic destruction. So that you would never have to bear a day of all-consuming fire and destruction. In verse 14, he asks another rhetorical question. He says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It's, it's Joel's way of saying God's not obli <clears throat> obligated to forgive you. He doesn't have to. He's not duty bound. You, he's certainly not indebted to you. If he's going to forgive, it will come freely of his own will and desire. But brothers and, just, uh, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the guarantee that God's will and heart towards you is mercy and love and compassion. Who knows whether God will forgive? You do. You do. You know how you know? Because he sent his son into the world to, to, to endure the day of darkness in your place. I said the passage is bookended by the command to blow the trumpet. And if, you, if you're interested and you want to do an interesting word study, do an interesting word study. Do, look, at, look at the word trumpet throughout the entire Bible. And that's kind of weird. But you'll be, you'll, you'll be, it, it will be encouraging to you. What you'll find is that it can mean a couple different things. When the trumpet sounds, it always means an announcement. But sometimes it means an announcement of judgment. Sometimes it means an announcement of deliverance. Sometimes it means both. And so Joel sounds the trumpet as a warning that the day of the Lord is coming. A day of darkness that will mean God's judgment. But brothers and sisters, because of Christ. When you hear that trumpet sound, when you hear that trumpet sound, it won't mean judgment. It will mean the final consummation, <coughs> consummation of your salvation. First Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend with heaven, from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now listen, you got Joel in your mind right now? What comes after this verse should shock you. This is what we read. Then we who are alive, who are left, oh, excuse me, I missed a part. Uh, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now that changes everything. Right? The, the day of the Lord is coming, a day of darkness and gloom. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, took your darkness and he made you children of light. 
He made you children of light. And, and, and now we await the promise of his coming, not with dread, but with joy. How can we keep quiet? How can we do anything but give our lives in telling anyone that will listen of our gracious and compassionate Savior who takes the darkness for us so, all, so that all we might know is his light? And how can we do anything but live out the rest of the, lot, the days the Lord gives us in joyful service to him, looking forward to that day when our hearts are made eternally happy in his presence? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have sent your Son to take on the darkness for us. That he absorbed in his body, in his life and in his death, all of your judgment for our sin. And that because of that reality, we have such a sure and confident and great hope that we will be with you forever. Lord, let us not forget that the day of the Lord will come, that the trumpet will sound, and that for many that day will mean judgment. We thank you that for us it will mean all our joy and longings fulfilled as we see you face to face. Encourage our hearts by your spirit with these truths. Apply these hearts to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me ask uh, Trevor and Jeremy to come up as we move to the table. Um, I've said this before, but you know, I, I'm always struck that whenever I whenever we come to a week where we're taking the, the Lord's Supper together, um, <clears throat> there's always just such a ready connection to the Lord's Supper. And here it is. Are you ready? I called you to encourage one another with these words, that the day of the Lord will come, that the trumpet will sound, and that when that happens, we will be taken to our Savior. One of the ways that we do that is by sharing in this meal together. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. So listen, when we're taking the Lord's Supper today, when you hold the bread and when you hold the cup, I know sometimes like in our little Western American way, and we think this is like a me and Jesus moment, Okay, it's, it's that, but it's more than that. Look around. Look around at your brothers and sisters and know that what you're doing them, what you're doing in that moment as you're encouraging them. And they are encouraging you, saying, keep your eye fixed on that day when he comes, when the trumpet sounds and we are with the Lord forever. We do that every time we take the Lord's Supper. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. Now, who is welcome to come to this table if you have seen your need and you have seen the day of darkness coming and the judgment that rightly belongs to you and yet you have found refuge in the saving work of Christ and you are trusting in him, knowing that even today his mercy seat is open and are trusting in him today, come to the table. If you are yielding to Christ in obedient faith, having been baptized. You've submitted your profession of faith to a, a, a local church and you're a member in a church that has been able to look into your life and see that you are indeed trusting the Christ of the Scriptures. You're welcome to eat. If that's not you this morning, if you're here and you're still weighing the claims of Scripture, uh, I am so glad that you are here and I'm so glad that you're thinking carefully about what Jesus teaches about himself and what the scriptures have to say about the gospel. But if that's not you, we would just encourage you to uh, allow these elements to pass by and find someone after the service that you can talk with and ask more questions to about this Jesus that we see in the scriptures. If that's not you, uh, the scriptures warn us 
that to eat and to drink in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And having received a picture of that judgment, even this morning, we, we, we certainly do not want that for anyone. So we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. This is my body taking the darkness in your place. As you hold the bread, what I want you to do is consider all of the ways in which that darkness should have fallen on you. All of the, the reasons that darkness should have fallen on, fallen on you. The sin that you still struggle with. The sin that you've had victory over. The sin that you will struggle with in coming days. And remember the fact that Jesus bore the darkness of that day, all of it, for you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we look forward to that day when you come, when the trumpet sounds, when mortality puts on immortality, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when that which is sowed in dishonor is raised in glory, when we will see you face to face, and we know that day will come because our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And our eternity is secure in him. Lord, help us to encourage one another each day as the day draws near. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for meeting with us here. In Jesus' name, amen.